Romans 8, 12 through 17. And before we jump in, I do want to pray as tonight's text is a bit of a heavy text, but it's heavy in a good way. It's heavy in an encouraging way. So let's pray and let's jump in to that, then to Romans 8, 12 to 17. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get into your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we thank you that you have given us the gift of revelation, of special revelation. We thank you that we are not left without a guide in this world. We are not left without a bright shining light in this world, a witness of your creative power and of your mercy and grace and of your person and of your work. Father, we thank you that the gospel is clearly laid out in your word and specifically in the book of Romans. Father, I pray that as we dig in tonight, you would bless each person here. Would you give us practical help in these verses to live our lives in a way that pleases you, that glorifies you, and that blesses others? We thank you that you are for us and not against us in Jesus. And my prayer, Father, is that all of us in this room would find ourselves united to him by grace through faith living a life that pleases him and blesses others. Father, we thank you for this time. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. All right, let's jump in. So I'm gonna read the whole section of scripture and then we will take it apart verse by verse. So here's what we usually do during announcements to make sure that everybody gets them. Uh, We'll be bringing around the guides, the gospel Center community discussion guides to make sure that you get them. Um, Eric, you want to exercise your membership and, and pass those out, brother? My man, look at this. We're putting them to work already, bro. So they're, they're right here. Oh, Elizabeth's on it. Never mind, Eric. She's on it. Look at that. She beat you to it. All right. So the guides will be coming around. These will help you um, to study further in the text this week, and they will help you for your group this week to dig deeper and to have uh, questions opened up for your group to discuss. All right, Romans 8, 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are not debtors, not, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. An encouraging text, no doubt. So the first thing I want us to look at is who is being addressed in this section of scripture here. If you look here, so then, brothers. Okay, now that word brothers is not demanding maleness. Okay, it, it could be translated and is in the CSB, brothers and sisters. Okay, so the word there in Greek doesn't demand brothers, but the ESV, along with many uh, English translations before it, translates brothers because the sisters are included in the brothers. So who are brothers and sisters? 
Christians. Okay? It seems pretty simple, but that's important as we open up this text here. The persons being addressed in this section of scripture is Christians. So then, brothers or brothers and sisters. What is the first thing that Paul wants the Christians to know in this section of scriptures? That we are not debtors, we are not debtors to the flesh. Now that is important, okay? The word debtors means obligated, it means to be owed, it means to be undered, it it means to be obligated to. So let me say that with flesh included. We do not owe the flesh anything. We are not under the flesh. We are not obligated to the flesh. We are not connected and united to the flesh anymore. The flesh doesn't have the power over us that it once did before Jesus came and broke its power. And so here's why that's important, friends. So many of us struggle in this Christian life. In fact, you could, in a sense, say the Christian life is struggle. It is to struggle. And I get that. I struggle daily. But what we can often believe because of the struggle is that we are still powerless over our temptation, powerless over the sin that dwells in us, and we are just getting thrown back and forth like waves in a storm. We are just subjected to every desire that comes to us, and we must obey the desires. What's being communicated here in this first verse, verse 12, is listen, you are not obligated to obey your sinful desires and the sinful temptations that come to you. Hear me, you do not have to give in. Just because the desire is there, just because you feel a strong pull, just because you want to, or because you don't want to, friends, that means nothing. You have the power to say, no, absolutely not. Pound the table if you have to, if you're by a table. Pound the wall. Just don't pound your spouse or your kids or your pet. Pound something, make a loud noise. No! Yell out, okay? You do not have to obey, friends. Now, that might seem obvious, but it's not so obvious when you fall into temptation again, is it? It's not so obvious when you say yes to sin again. It's like we forget. We don't owe the flesh anything. You're not in debt to it anymore. That's the first thing to notice. To live according to the flesh. So friends, here's here's first thing out of verse 12. Christians should not be marked as people of the flesh. Plain and simple. And, And as just a friendly, pastoral, I love you warning. If your life is marked more by giving into the flesh, giving into temptation, I don't say yes to Christ, I always say yes to sin, you may be in the flesh and not in the spirit. Where do you get that from? Well, look at verse 13. Let's move on. For if, if you live according to the flesh, 
you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, what this can't be saying is temporary bodily death. Because all of us, whether in the flesh or in the spirit, will experience that. Okay, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every person, whether Christian or not, is going to pass through this door called death. It's a must. And so being that that's the case, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, can't mean physical death. So what's the other option? Spiritual death. Meaning hell. Meaning eternal damnation. Meaning, friends, you will be lost forever if you're in the flesh. So this is, again, what theologians call ontology, meaning being itself. There are two realities. You're in the flesh and you are obligated to it. You are in debt to it. You must obey it and it will not submit to God's law, nor can it. And if that's all you have inside of you, friends, you will die both physically and spiritually. That's, that's the reality. But the reality number two is we are in the spirit. Now, think about being out in the rain. How many of you have been out in the rain? You know what that's like to be, you know, shielding yourself from it. And then you know what it's like to get out of the rain, to be under a shelter or to run into your car or to run into the store. There's in and out. Friends, you're either in the flesh or you're not in the flesh and you're in the spirit. One of two realities. Now, to be in the spirit does not mean you won't be tempted to sin. It doesn't mean you won't have strong pull towards what is evil. It doesn't mean you won't think negative thoughts. It doesn't mean you will become sinless. It does not mean that. Why? Because as we saw in chapter seven, even Christians who are in the spirit have what's called indwelling sin or sin living in them. And that sin living in them dwells in the body. We unpack that at the end of Romans seven. And so sin living in you still uses the body as a place to launch temptations and to launch uh, strong desires for what does not please God. And the flesh uses the body in order to sin against God. But there are only two realities, friend. You're in the flesh or you're in the spirit. There's two options, one or the other. Now, the but is an important but. But if by the Spirit, so notice the by the Spirit part. That is very important. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, if the contrast here is between eternal damnation, what do you think the live is? Eternal life. What seems to be on display here is this. If by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are actively warring against your flesh, you will live. Now, does that mean that salvation is by works? No, it does not. Because you remember all the chapters previous to this section of scripture, right? We never take a text out of its immediate context, and we never take the text out of its larger context, which is the whole book itself. 
And Romans 3 at the end said, no, we are, we are justified by faith, period. And so what is, what is being said here is the evidence that you are in the spirit and not as in the flesh is if you are actively fighting against your sin. Now, the good news is, friends, this, you can fight against your sin because you have a power available to you that is alien, that is not yours. The good news about that alien power that is not yours, meaning it doesn't originate from within your own being, it's not of you, that's what I mean by alien. The good news is it is a power that is unlimited, your phone dies, you got to plug it in. Your, your car runs out of gas, uh, you have to fill it back up. Your Tesla runs out of battery, you got to hit the fast charger. This, this power never runs out. The Spirit of God. Here's the question, friends. Are we tapping into the power or are we relying constantly on our own strength? And so we do have some responsibility here to work with the Spirit. Not for salvation. You can't save yourself. You do nothing to gain salvation. It is monergistic, to use a theological term. It's God alone that saves. But friends, you cooperate, cooperate with the Holy Spirit to put to death sin and temptation, and evil desires. And so if you expect, a lot of Christians expect this, well, I'm a Christian. I don't have to do anything. I should just not sin. I should just not be tempted. I don't really have to do anything. That is a bad expectation. That is a wrong theological framework. You must fight. Look at the language here. If by the Spirit you put to death, there is active killing here. How many of you have killed a bug before? We'll just go with the bug. Okay? We, we've all killed bugs. Some of us have killed larger things, deer perhaps, or maybe you've ran over a squirrel, or maybe you've even hit a pet, someone's pet. That's terrible. But you, have, you know what it's like to actually take the life of something, a, a creature of God. Now listen, I'm all about killing fruit flies. I mean, I, I do not want them in my house. Death to the fruit flies. And stink bugs, yes, amen. And wasps and any stinging insects. You have to be actively attacking your sin. Now you say, that sounds like work. Yes. Friends, the Christian life is not a couch or a lazy boy recliner. The Christian life is not a vacation, all expenses paid, you know, period. It's not a cruise ship. Now, I'm all for cruise ships, but the Christian life is not a cruise ship. We don't just coast and cruise into sanctification and growth. This text says you have to put active effort, but listen, not by your own power. You rely on the power of God to actively fight against sin and temptation. Now, this is all theory right now. Meaning, all right, you've told me nothing about everyday life right now except that I have to do this. Okay, so I've thought to myself at this point in the, in the message, we need to get so practical here so we can put flesh and bones on these ideas. Would that be okay? 
Because what we often do in Christianity is we like to get an intellectual stimulation. It's like, I get that, I understand that. And then we walk away thinking we've gained something because we've understood. James says, don't just be hearers of the word, but what? Doers. Listen, guys, God's looking for action, not just understanding. Now, listen, I love to understand. I mean, I'm committed to understanding. I, a majority of my time as a pastor is spent trying to understand both the Bible and God's word and people. And people are much harder to understand than the Bible. <laughs> you all confuse the snot out of me. Okay? And I confuse the snot out of myself, all right? So I don't even understand my own whackness, all right? So the point is, by the Spirit, we must put to death the deeds of the body. So, so let's get real practical here. Here's a text in Colossians. This is the application section of Colossians. And Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is earthly in you? Meaning the things of the flesh, the, the things that pertain to this realm, this existence. Like what? Sexual immorality. Now, this is a broad term. But friends, this includes things that you would click on your phone, things that you would click on your computer, things that you would click on your iPad, uh, staring too long at physical people out in public, staring at the gym, looking at advertisements, and, and get, look, I go to Target. I see them 30 feet on the wall, just like you. It's like, do we have to put the models 30 feet in expanse? We can't tell what section of the store this is without that. Hey, sliding past Victoria's Secrets in the mall. You're like, oh, I think I'll go in there and see what's new. What's on sale in here? And you're looking at all the models. Let's get real practical here. Okay. For ladies, what about romance novels where you're, you're actually imagining a whole nother world for yourself and you're in this world because you don't like the world you're in and so you, you just fantasy and lust all over the place in your own mind, in your imagination. Do you realize that's sexual immorality? Or what if, maybe you don't even need a fantasy novel. What if you just go on Facebook and look at other people's lives and you insert yourself into their life and imagine, oh, if I could have that spouse and that family and do those things that they do. Sexual immorality. Or if you're not doing the sex part, it's at least coveting. Which, by the way, is the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. Now listen, I'm trying to be practical here. Are we cool with that? Shall we stay on sexual immorality or do we get it? Keep going, my man. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Ty. Amen. Friends, we have to fight in this area. Now listen, our culture 2021 in the United States is one of the most highly sexualized cultures, period. You can't even watch a PG-13 movie without it getting jammed down your throat. I live in the same world you do. And friends, we have to fight to stay pure. Do you know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the pure in heart for what? They will see God. I love that. I got it right that time, Pete. I got rebuked in the last, for the last two sermons 
by, by saying, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the earth. I was wrong. They're not going to inherit the earth. It's the meek or the humble that inherit the earth. And, and so my elders are always checking on me. Trust me. If I say something wrong, they're going to let me know, which I appreciate. Let me know. Okay. So I got rebuked and they were like, you better confess next week. I was like, all right. You're welcome. With the resident theologian. He said, I have spoken. And it was. Huh. All right. Blessed are the pure in heart, friends. Why? They will see God. Now, this is practical. Listen, you can have a deeper, more intimate relationship with God, see more of his glory, see more of his beauty, see him in all of his grandeur. How? By fighting sexual sin. Isn't that a good motivation? Man, I get to see God if I could just be pure in heart. That means that God in your vision could grow. And if you're like, no, I, I think my vision of God is pretty accurate. Friends, you have bad theology then because God is infinite in his glory, infinite in his attributes. There is no end to him. Therefore, your vision of him can always grow bigger. It can never, ever be enough. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you will just fight sexual sin and seek to be pure in heart, you will see him. Don't you want to see God in greater glory? Don't you want him to be more attractive to you? Don't you want to be more satisfied in him? Don't you want him to reveal more of himself to you? I do. How? Fight sexual sin. Don't think that you can live in America in 2021 and not fight sexual sin. You're going to die. You either fight to kill it or it's fighting to kill you. And if you just lay down and say, take me, it's going to take you out. All right, let's keep going because we got a lot more to do. Impurity, I think that's a descriptor there of sexual immorality. Passion, this is evil passions that come from your body, also connected with sexual immorality. Evil desire, also connected sexually. He's just laying out the ways in which sexual immorality expresses itself. And covetousness, 10th commandment. Now, this one is so helpful because it says, which is idolatry? Now, it's Thanksgiving week, so give me a second. To covet is to look at someone else's whatever and say, I want that and my life's not complete because I don't have that. Worse, it's to look at someone else's something, either life or situation or bank account or spouse or kids or whatever, and you're mad that they have it and you don't. That's even worse. But you know what it says to God, friends? That's on a human plane. You know what covetousness says to God? You haven't given me enough and you're not enough. Fist to the heavens, which is idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment one. Friends, when we're not satisfied with all the goodness that God has given us, 
the life that is a gift and we covet anyone else's anything, it's idolatry. You are violating the first and second, or I'm sorry, the first and 10th commandment. So that's really practical, is it not? So listen, let's kill covetousness. All right, let's get even more practical. Let's open that up another, another little bit. When you compare yourself with other people, it is inevitable that you will be tempted to covet. If you think you can compare your life with other people's lives, your gifts with other people's gifts, your situation with other, if you think you can do that and play with that and not be tempted to covet, you have no idea the power of sin. And you're playing with fire. Don't compare. So why don't, before we're tempted to covet, why don't we just decide, you know what? I'm not even going to open that door of comparison. I'm just going to shut that. And then fight at the comparison level before you get to the coveting level. By the spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body or the flesh and you will live. You're going to live. On account of these sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Friends, that's a warning. The wrath of God is not coming for Christians, praise God, because the wrath of God already came for Christ. That's what the cross was all about. He endured the wrath of God as a substitute in our place for all those who would put their trust and faith in him. But the wrath of God is coming on all who are in the flesh, not in the spirit, who are not united to Christ. And his wrath is coming on account of those types of things. But there's many more things. But those are some of them. And so friends, here's the warning. Look, verse six says, the wrath of God is coming on account of these. You're playing with the stuff that's going to invoke the wrath of God on unbelievers. Why would you want to play with that stuff? Imagine a ferocious, hungry lion. I mean, you've all been to the Pittsburgh Zoo, I assume. If not, you should go. It's, it's a fantastic zoo. Okay? Imagine somehow you were able to jump into that, to that cage with those lions. And somehow, maybe they just ate. They were not just attacking you like, like a chew toy. But then you walked up to it and tested it and was just like, right across the face. And you smiled at it. Okay. Friends, we play with sin like that. And if sin evokes the wrath of God, you're like slapping God in the face who controls all the lions. Remember Daniel and the lions then? You remember that story? So we would be terrified of a lion, but we're like, God, I could sin in his, slap in his, you know, slap him in the face. He'll be all right. He's not going to attack me. I'm trying to make this very practical, okay? When we play with sin, we are playing with death, period. All right, let's move on. Look carefully then how you walk. Okay, again, the, the, the section of Ephesians, it's very practical. Look carefully how you walk. Now, walk is 
living out the Christian life. Not as unwise, but wise. You read the book of Proverbs, ask the Holy Spirit to help you make application. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We've already established the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Yeah, I like that. I want to know what God's will is so I can walk in it, so I can glorify him. And do not get drunk with wine. This is the Lord's will. If you are getting drunk, you are directly violating God's will. I'm not going to ask for hands, but friends, you are sinning against God if you're getting drunk. Very practical. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to fight that temptation and don't slap God in the face with your fifth beer or your third glass of wine or whatever. Don't do it. You're like, look, he hasn't killed me yet. You should not play that game. Don't get drunk if you're a Christian. Listen, those who get drunk don't enjoy alcohol the way it was meant to be enjoyed. God did give wine to gladden the heart, but not to drunken the person. The psalmist does say that God gave wine to gladden the heart, but it doesn't ever condone getting drunk. Okay, so by the Spirit, you fight that temptation. You fight that third drink, perhaps. Or if you can't stop, you don't start at all. If you know, yeah, every time I start drinking, I just drink too much. It's time to stop, period. Stop playing around. And here's the thing. I understand the, the, the great desire and temptation to escape problems through drinking and drugs. I lived that life. I understand that. Friends, do you realize that if you're living your life in such a way where you're using drugs and alcohol to escape your messed up life, you may not be in the spirit, but you may be living by the flesh because that's all, not all, that's what most non-Christians do. Many non-Christians, that's how they get through life. But you're a Christian, right? Or are you? I love you, and I'm trying to be practical. So that's the first thing. Don't get drunk. For that is debauchery, but, and I love the alternative here. So don't do this, but do this. But... Be filled with the Spirit. Remember, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh and you'll live. Addressing, now now he's going to describe what it is to walk by the Spirit here. I love this. What is it to be filled with the Spirit? Okay, the contrast, filled with wine. We know what that does. Some people, it makes them really angry. Some people, it makes them really happy. I love you, man. Come here. Have I ever told you? You're my best friend. You know? Come here, girl. Give me a come here. So you're filled with wine or some other fermented substance, potatoes perhaps, okay? Or you're filled with the Spirit. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Look, you're addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Meaning you have this kind of inner song inside of you. It kind of sounds like joy a little bit. You're medit when songs play in your head, it's kind of a form of meditation. And so we're hoping that Snoop Dogg's not on rotation in your head, because that's probably a sign of being filled with the flesh. 
But if the, some of the songs we just sang and others are on rotation in your head, that's probably a sign that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, very practically, if you spend all of your music time listening to unbiblical trash, what do you expect to be playing in your head? Look, I don't understand. Why am I always thinking about sexual immorality? Yet your whole playlist is all sexual immorality. All of your shows on TV are just loaded with sexual immorality. I don't get it. And God's going, really? You don't get it? And then he said, Chris, when we get to Romans 8.13, I want you to hammer them. And I said, okay. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't hear from God. But I figured, I figured I would hammer you. I love you guys. So we want to be making sure that we have godly, biblical themes and songs running in our head. And then notice the community aspect, addressing one another. So this isn't just you with your AirPod Pros in. No, this is you in community, addressing one another. Isn't that interesting? When someone's full of the Holy Spirit, they are engaging other people with what will encourage and build them up. He says, engaging one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Now, verse 20, thanksgiving. Giving thanks always for everything. Everything? Everything? Can you read? (laughs) Now, I don't like that it says everything. But God's word stands over us. We don't stand over it. We don't get to qualify what it says. We don't get to say everything except. Now, I don't like that as much as you don't like that. But see, if God is sovereign and he is in control of your days, that means everything that comes your way in some mysterious way is a part of his big plan for you and for everyone connected to you. And I know that's hard. I I sympathize with you in that that is hard. But this is the Lord's will. Doesn't it say in verse 17, understand what the will of the Lord is. And right now he's unpacking the Lord's will. Give thanks in everything. How? By the spirit, friends. You say, I can't do that. I would agree. But you, with the power and enabling of the Holy Spirit, you can. Now I gotta move on. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is a a mutual submission in the body of Christ. And then interestingly, in 22 down to the end of five, he unpacks what mutual submission looks like in marriage. And we don't have time to do that. Now, one more text I want to throw in real quick because it's a parallel text quickly. There's a few more nuances because it's even, I think, more practical than the Ephesians 5 verse. Much of the same, but a little different nuance. Put on then as God's chosen ones, so the chosen ones are Christians, put on as God's chosen ones, holy beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
Okay. Now I could unpack the opposite of those, but I think you know that the opposite of humility is pride. The opposite of uh, kindness is harshness and, and rudeness. The opposite of meekness is also pride. And then what's the opposite of patience? Impatience. It's pretty simple, right? Good job, Ty. If you're an impatient person, friends, that is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. You say, I don't like that one. Can we make it eight fruits and just cut that patience one out? No, you can't. Bearing with one another. Now, the patience, I think, flows right into bearing with one another. Because how many of you, isn't it hard to be patient with other people? For sure. Not just with circumstances and situations, but with people. Even people you love. Patience, bearing with one another. What does that look like? Forgiving one another. Now, friends, it always hurts me when Christians refuse to forgive one another. Because what that says to me is either one, they don't understand their sin and the weight of forgiveness that's been offered them. Because Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much will love much. And if we understand the depth and gravity of our sin and how much we've been forgiven, that is a fantastic motivator to then go and forgive lesser offenses. And so if you can't forgive and you're like, this is a mountain, you have no idea the mountain range that God has forgiven you. Now I get it. Is forgiveness hard? 100%. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't do it. But praise God, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, enabling you to bear with one another and to forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. <laughs> He's like, he just threw that in there. Oh, and by the way, be thankful. Now look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, we were supposed to have the Holy Spirit dwell in us in Ephesians 5, but here the text is saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you. But the results are the exact same. So what does that mean? If I could quote my friend Tim Brendel, it means to be led by the spirits, to be led by the words. So give thanks when you hear it, whether read or it's heard. Friends, when we are walking by the spirit, we are walking by the word. And the writer of the word is the same spirit that dwells in us and empowers us to follow the very word that he wrote. What does that mean? That means you need to be in your word understanding what it means and how you ought to live. And then you ask for the power to live that. Now, the word of Christ, most specifically, if we were to like bullseye target, it means the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so it's the will of God filtered through the gospel. And I don't have time to unpack how to do that, but I did just do it with forgiveness. 
Forgive as you've been forgiven in Christ. Be patient with others as God has been so patient with you. Okay? Be kind because it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, Romans 2. You see how you can put the gospel filter on all the imperatives or the commands of Scripture? That's how we're supposed to do it. The gospel is the means by which we are enabled to do all the commands of God. And the Holy Spirit is the power by which we can do all the commands of God. Now, we sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's three times give thanks in that little short section of scripture. Do you think God cares about if we're either grateful or ungrateful? Notice how being filled with the Holy Spirit or walking by the Spirit is a life of thankfulness. Now, friends, just be honest with yourself. Are you an ungrateful person, unsatisfied, coveting, comparing, or are you a thankful person? Man, I'm just so thankful. I'm satisfied in Christ. Most of us cannot put our hands up and say, yes, I'm satisfied in Christ. It's an aim, but we're not there yet. I get that. It's a great aim out in the future, and it's a great aim to pray towards. Now, I want to move on because we're only in verse 13, and we have 14, 15, 16, and 17 to go. Okay, can I move on? All right. Pat's like, please, move on. (laughs) Enough of the practical application. All right. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, this text means this. Everyone who is led by the Spirit is a child of God. And he's going to unpack that in a few more verses. But when we are under the power of the Holy Spirit, we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. We are children of God. Now, sons in Romans 8 includes daughters. And I know that's kind of weird. But in the Old Testament and in the first century, sonship was connected to inheritance. And so the daughters also get to inherit like sons in the Old Testament. Okay, so we are all sons of God being led by the Spirit of God. Now let's move to verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now I'm gonna pause there for just one second. The spirit of slavery to fall back into fear is connected to the law. Because if you remember Romans 7 into the beginning of 8, it was the law that was being contrasted with uh, our flesh. Okay? And because we were in the flesh, sin had the power to take the law and to use it to kill us. It took the good thing of God's law, excited sin. Coveting was what Paul used as an example. He said, I would not have known what coveting was unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And then all kinds of covetous desires sprung up within me. And so the fear is connected to the law and fear is connected to the penalty for breaking the law. But you know what's the good news for for Christians? Jesus has taken the penalty. Therefore, we don't have to be afraid anymore. Now, there is a positive sense in which we should fear God, isn't there? Doesn't Proverbs 1.7 say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? But fools despise 
wisdom and discipline. So we need to be careful that we don't just rule out all fear, but there is a positive fear and there's a negative fear. Now, what's gonna be unpacked in the rest of the, of the chapter here is that the fear has to do with punishment. And so this is the fear that on judgment day, I'm gonna face God's wrath. And there is right here in the text, a way that you can escape that. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit, see the capital S there, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. Before we move on, uh, I want to look at 1 John real quick, okay? And here's why. Again, practical. Let's be very practical here. Fear has to do with punishment, okay? And the love of God has been given to us as a gift. So love and perfect love will cast out fear, specifically fear of punishment, Okay, so let's look at this real quick. Again, we're unpacking 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, right over from Aramaic, Abba, it means dear father. It's intimate father. So 1 John 4, 12 to 21, I'm not gonna expose it. I'm just gonna run through it. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... Okay, this is what the first thing the Spirit does when he enters us. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Okay, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. So John is just building here one after another. First thing he says is, No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. So if Christians are loving one another, the result is God abides in us. Okay, keep that in mind. God abides in us. And by his abiding in us, his love is perfected in us, the Holy Spirit. Okay, God abiding in us is the Holy Spirit. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Okay, what is it? It's the love being perfected in us because he has given us of his spirit. Okay, the spirit is the one who produces the love for one another and for God himself. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. So that is a simple gospel explanation. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John says it here so simply in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. And he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. So this is is a great plea for us to love one another. Why? Because God is love. And if God abides in us, the love should be coming out of us towards one another. By this, verse 17, is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, okay? So love being perfected in us does something. It gives us confidence for judgment day. As we abide in God and God abides in us, our love grows. And listen, practically, friends, 
You can have confidence on judgment day because the love for other believers and the love for God is growing inside of you. Do you see that plainly in the text? Listen to me as a contrast. And I'm trying to do this as a help, friends. If you find yourself cold, hateful, and apathetic towards other people, that is not a good sign. Friends, I am warning you. If you find people in your sphere of influence or past or present that you just can't stand, I hate you. You, friend, must examine that. I am so serious. If you don't want to take me serious, go take this section of scripture, meditate and pray on it and ask God to show you. If you're thinking in your heart right now, Chris, it's about time to shut up. I think you need to do some business with God. Because the evidence that you will be okay on judgment day is this. By this, love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Listen, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Loving. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, and it's the fear of judgment. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. The great reformed statement of God coming after us, we not coming after him. If anyone says, okay, this is a profession of faith, quote, I love God and hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. A liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. See the must? You must. It's not an option. If you're like, I love people who love me, everyone does that. It's Christians who are supposed to love their enemies. Do good to those who blaspheme you, persecute you, speak all kinds of evil against you. And I know that's impossible. You're like, I can't. And I say, amen, you have the Holy Spirit. And he can do it through you. You see, many of the expectations on the Christian are utterly impossible without the Spirit of God supernaturally moving through you. Friends, Christianity is not just an intellectual game. It's a doing and an acting reality. And it's a doing and acting reality by the power of God. This is good news, friends. You can experience the power of God in your life. And you're like, I want it differently than having to love people I actually hate. And he's like, no, this is the way. This is real Christianity. I will give you the power to be patient with people who are hard to be patient with. I will give you the power to love unlovable people. I will give you the power to forgive people as you've been forgiven. Okay, this is real Christianity, friends. And you're like, this is so basic. Real Christianity is basic. Okay, what you might want is some high theology that never comes down to earth and walks the pavement. That's not real Christianity. Real Christianity has to do with what are you going to do tomorrow morning or tonight? Now, listen, I love big books. 
I have tons of them. But if all I'm doing is reading my big books and trying to understand them so that I can explain them to others, and yet no action takes place from what I'm learning in these big books that explain this big book, there's a problem. Amen? So Jesus cries out in the garden, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Galatians chapter four, Paul speaking to the church at Galatia says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that in order that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay? God's purpose in sending Jesus was that we might become a part of his family. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Do you see this great consistency across the letters? God has sent his spirit into us and by that spirit, we relate to God. But the reality here in Romans 8 verse 15 is we have a, a uh, an adopted spirit, or we have received the spirit of adoption. Grudem helpfully and simply says this, we may define adoption as follows. Adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. Is that simple? Yes, it is. But it's a beautiful, simple truth, which means prior to being born again, we are not in God's family. As much as people want to think, I'm a child of God, I'm in the family of God. If you're not born again, you are not. John 8, describes your position. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do his will. Okay, that's what Ephesians 2 says. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all lived among them at one time. So here's adoption, friends. Listen to this glorious truth. God takes us out of Satan's family and he brings us into his own family. We now have a father who is glorious and blessed and beautiful and good. We have a big brother who is perfect in our place. And not just do we have a big brother, but we're united to this big brother named Jesus. And as a result of having this new father and Jesus being united to us, we get the spirit of the father and the son. This is the good news. And the adoption is you're now a part of my family. Now, that means that all other Christians and most specifically the Christians in your local church are who you're supposed to be loving as family. And I know that's hard because we're all a little weird. Some of us are a lot of weird, okay? Some of us are hard to love. Some of us are draining, right? It's like, man, when I'm with that person, I just, I feel the life sucked out of me. Okay? Welcome to the family of God. Did not the life of Jesus get sucked out of him for you? You see, this is how the gospel applies to everything. You say, this person drains me. You don't think God could say that about you? And thankfully, there's so much of God, he can't be drained. It's amazing you guys come back every week to have me rail on you like this. I just thought about that. It's, it really is amazing. I love you guys. I'm amazed. Let's go to 16 and 17 and finish. The spirit himself, 
bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, there is debate around this text. Is it experiential or is it just we read it and exercise faith and believe it? Now, I am of the persuasion that this is an experiential verse. Okay, What I mean by that is if God literally lives inside of you, like the Bible says he does, you should be receiving some kind of external, internal, subjective even confirmation that you are God's. You say, what exactly does that look like? And I would have to say it looks different for every person. Now, I'm not going to say you're going to hear a voice. I'm not going to say you're going to have this inner warmth that just comes out of your body. But what I will say is there is such a thing as experiential Christianity. And I think this verse is talking about an experience that you have with your spirit, small s, and the spirit, capital S. And what is this experience? It's God confirming that you are his. Now, if I put my, well, if I ask you to put your hand up and say, have you had an experience like this where God has confirmed your adoption? I wonder how many hands would go up. I'm not going to do it. I saw one hand. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it. Here's my encouragement. We don't chase experiences as Christians. Never chase experience. This text doesn't say you should chase the experience. It just says it as a matter of fact. Look, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Plain and simple, matter of fact, this should happen. Now, sometimes this looks like I prayed for that exact thing and it happened. Oh my God, and your mind is blown. You're like, this is real. (laughs) Sometimes it is a bodily experience. Sometimes it is. You're wrestling with something. You're wrestling with something and you have a conversation with someone and right on the nose, that person without knowing your situation has exactly what you need. You're like, oh my gosh, that was a gift from God. And I can't lay out all the ways in which this happens. How many of you have been reading the Bible and it's like certain passages kind of elevate off the text and float there and flip this way vertically and like stand out to you and you're like, whoa, God is speaking to me right now, right? All these are ways in which God the Spirit confirms with our spirit that we are actually his. You belong to me. I have an actual relationship with you. This is not just an idea. This is not just a community of people that are nice or at least trying to be nice. This is real. The living God, the creator himself has a relationship with me. This is amazing. Friends, that's Christianity. This is just real life Christianity. Again, we're not to seek these experiences, but they happen. Oftentimes when we seek the experience, it's manufactured. And then when we're not expecting it, when we're not looking for it, all of a sudden, and that's how you know it's real. God shows up in the everyday. Now at the end of Ephesians 3, we're not going to go there, but we're told to pray that we would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. You're like, wait a minute. How surpasses knowledge has to mean experiential. If we are to know in an intimate way, 
the love of God that goes beyond just knowing about it, that means you experience it. That's what this text is saying. You experience the love of God. And Ephesians 3, it's in the context of a prayer. So what does that mean? If you were to just pray the scripture, you could say, God, I want to experience this love that surpasses knowledge. You would be praying the will of God because you're praying the Bible. I commend it. Pray it for 30 days and see if God doesn't show up. And if children, notice all the arguments. If this, then this. If this, if, the, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, that means that we are coming into a fantastic inheritance. Remember I said the sons of, of God were connected with the inheritance in the Old Testament? Here is, we are united to Jesus. He is the inheritor of what? What does Corinthians say about what Jesus inherits? All things. That means that we, united to him, in some sense, to a lesser degree, inherit all things with him. The universe? Yes, yours. God himself? Yes, yours. Not to control and have him do what you will, but to have him as your God and you as his son or daughter. This is the good news, friends. We are co-heirs with Christ, provided, and we're done, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Now, the suffering with him means this. In this Christian life, you are going to face all kinds of trouble and trials. If you haven't yet, it's coming for you. And so it's my job to warn you repeatedly, expect trouble as a Christian. What often happens is in some strange perversion of Christianity, we're told when you become a Christian, things will get good and things will be easier and your bank account will grow and you'll get healthier and you'll just go to new levels of glory. And then trouble hits, I'm out. I was lied to. God hates me, perhaps. No, friends, you will suffer as a Christian. How many of you are in the middle of it right now? Let me see. Okay. Three-fourths of the room just put their hands up. Hey, friends, listen, this is the Christian life. But the suffering is temporary. We're not promised an eternal of suffering. Look what it says. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Friends, glory is coming for us. New bodies, new heavens, new earth, minus the curse. Friends, something as simple as this. How many of you just long for order and like not having to run the dishwasher 17 times a week? Like, I just long to be done with laundry. I just long to not have to change the oil or wash the dog again for the third time today. Right? All these frustrations of life. How many cases of diapers have I bought at Target over the last 11 years? 10. Too many. Too many cases of wipes, friends. I'm done with diapers. I wish I was done with diapers. I'm still not. It's just now the diapers get like, they're just 
they get blown out because my dude's so big, okay? We could cut that out of the recording for future, in case he listens to this sermon someday. All right, so glory is coming and we're done, okay? Glory is coming. Friends, listen, I want to encourage you. I want, I want you to leave here saying this. The suffering is but a moment, but the glory is forever. We're in light of forever. Even if you were to live a hundred years, most of us won't, but even if you were to live a hundred years, that is one trillionth. And that's not even doing it justice because what is an unlimited amount of time? We have no idea because we've never experienced that. But friends, if you live a hundred years, what is that? Is it a period in a thousand page novel? Yes and no. And friends, these are the things we have to remind ourselves of and remind each other of is that this is temporary. The suffering is temporary. If we suffer with him like he suffered, he suffered temptation yet didn't give in. He suffered mistreatment and didn't give in. He suffered being accused and didn't give in. He suffered physically even unto death and didn't give in. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And on the third day, he rose glorious. And friends, we are promised to rise with him. This is the hope we have. As hard as it gets now, the future is beyond bright. Beyond bright. And so let us rejoice, even if for a little while we have to suffer. Because friends, glory is coming. And I want to leave this moment right now saying, you have the spirit of the living God dwelling in you. You have more power than you can imagine. I have more power than I can imagine. Will we walk by the spirit and not by the flesh that we might live a life that glorifies God and blesses others? I think this should be clear, but I'm going to say it. Friends, even if you were to spend your whole life seeking to put to death the misdeeds of the body, minus Jesus would not save you. Please, I pray you haven't heard me say in this message, go to war with your sin that you might be made right with God. Only Jesus can save us. His person his work, his substitutionary death on the cross, his mercy extended to us is our only means of salvation. In response to what Jesus has done, we seek to live in a way that pleases him. I hope you heard that. Oftentimes when we talk about the Christian fight, the warfare that is expected of Christians, we can get the gospel confused. Let's not do that tonight. We are made right with God based on Jesus' work alone. And so we sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And so this in your hand right now represents the broken body of Jesus and the bloodshed of Jesus, 
which is the only way anyone will ever be saved from the wrath to come. Jesus soaked up the wrath of God in our place. Praise God. Let's together remember Jesus' body broken and blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins and acceptance by God the Father. Father, we thank you so much that you loved us enough to send your only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would motivate us to be about fighting sin and temptation. Father, would we not give in? Would we not lay down? Would we not treat it lightly? Motivate us, empower us, push us to fight sin and temptation. Holy Spirit, would we learn to depend on you alone for power to kill sin? Father, would we have the hope of eternal life? We thank you for loving us enough to send Jesus to live, to die, and to rise in our place. And it's in Jesus' name we give you thanks and praise. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.